I'm going to invite Joey Morningstar to come up and read our scripture for today from 1 Samuel 25, 23 through 35. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and fell face down before him, bowing low to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, what did she say? Put the blame on me, my master. Put the blame on me, my master, but please let me, your servant, speak to you directly. Please listen to what your servant has to say. Please, my master, pay no attention to this despicable man, Nabal. He's exactly what his name says he is. His name means fool, and he's foolish. But I myself, your servant, didn't see the younger men that you, my master, sent. I pledge, my master, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, that the Lord has held you back from bloodshed and taking vengeance into your own hands. But now let your enemies and those who seek to harm my master be exactly like Nabal. He, here is a gift which your, servants, which your servant has brought to my master. Please let it be given to the young men who follow you, my master. Please forgive any offense by your servant. The Lord will definitely make an enduring dynasty for my master because my master fights the Lord's battles and nothing evil will be found, found in you throughout your lifetime. If someone chases after you and tries to kill you, my master, then your life will be bound up securely in the bundle of life by the Lord your God. But he will fling away your enemies' lives as from the pouch of a sling. When the Lord has done for my master all the good things he has promised you, and has instilled you as Israel's leader. Don't let this be a blot or a burden to my master's conscience, that you shed blood needlessly, or that my master took vengeance into his own hands. When the Lord has done good things for my master, please remember your servant. So David said to Abigail, Bless the Lord God of Israel who sent you to meet me today, and bless you for, and your good judgment for preventing me from shedding blood and taking vengeance into my own hands today. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord of God, the Lord God of Israel lives, the one who kept me from hurting you, if you hadn't come quickly and met me up here, there wouldn't be a single male left to come mourning. Then David accepted everything she had brought for him. Return home in peace, he told her. Be assured that I've heard your request and have agreed to it. Thanks, Joey. Like I mentioned earlier, this week has been a week of drafts. I started to write this sermon several times. I, I was writing the sermon last week. I felt so ahead of things. And then I had to revisit it on Wednesday and then on Thursday. And then finally sat down on Friday after being inundated, swamped really with grief and the seemingly overwhelming violence and racial strife in our country, in our city on this block. Seems that each time I sat down and to write, things got worse. Like the violence accelerated, and each time it went around the track, it got faster and faster. Even before Thursday night in Dallas, there was this cloud. It, it just seemed like something was going to have to give, right? In our scripture reading, too, violence has perpetuated. David has begun to make his home in the wilderness, as Dave spoke about last week. He's on the lamb from Saul's attacks. Last week, we peeked in on an incident in which the would-be king David spares 
an ever-vulnerable Saul's life in a cave. In choosing to spare Saul's life, David de-escalates the situation for now. We get a glimpse of David acting like some sort of quote-unquote prince of peace. And then at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 25, old Samuel dies and Israel mourns. This, this man was the nation's heart and soul. He was their prophetic backbone, their compass. So following this state funeral, David goes back into the wild, into the wilderness. David puts his men to work in the wild, doing the sort of hearts and minds work that you do with soldiers when there's not a whole lot of fighting right away. David knows sheep, so sheep seems to be their way to make friends. They hang out with a stranger named Nabal's men, and David's men treat them well. It comes time for Nabal to shear his sheep. This is a time of feasting. It's, it's a time of harvest. So David tries to set up a meeting. Surely the presumptive king of Israel would be met with generosity and hospitality, with courtesy and honor. Not quite. <laughs> Nabal, Nabal doesn't seem to know these rules, these guidelines. Nabal's name means fool. That's a little hint that should tip us off at how sideways this thing could go the whole time, right? So Nabal blasts David. Who's David? Who's Jesse? There are all sorts of riffraff washing up on this part of town, slaves running away from masters. I don't know and I don't care where he came from and where he's going. I don't want anything to do with David. And that's all it took for David, just that little slight that's all it took for David to turn 400 of his roaming men back into warriors. He says, all of you strap on your swords. At the drop of a hat, things escalated. If David was around now, he might have spewed the sort of venom towards his men to say, uh, and to wonder aloud if the sand in that desert might glow, right? It's really something that this gets David so hot, so deep, so fast. It's this, it seems this encounter even made its way into David's art, right? Into his songwriting. We, we get Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool, that word is Nabal. There is no God. They're corrupt and they do evil things. Not one of them does anything good. The Lord looks down from heaven on humans to see if anyone's wise to see if anyone seeks God, but all of them have turned bad. Everyone is corrupt. No one does good, not even one person. David seems able to stare down Nabal's sin, his arrogance, and, and call it out without seeing his own sin, his own arrogance, his own violence. Even as he writes those words, and, and then Paul later hinges the whole gospel of Christ's saving work on those words, there's no, one not, there's no one that's righteous, not one. David fails to see himself included in that no one. Isn't that the tragedy of our lives? That sin in other people is so crystal clear, but our own sin and our own violence, our own 
fear is so hidden before us. We can't see it when we look in the mirror. We saw this kind of myopia play out this week. Uh, that first death, well, the first recent death, when Alton Sterling was shot by an officer responding to a complaint at a North Baton Rouge convenience store, CNN was quick to post an old mug shot. Tweets abounded about his criminal record and his past sins, and it all obscured our ability to see this man that had died, this man made in the image of God, this man who left behind a wife and several kids. All this happens in an instant, and it happens subconsciously for us. Perhaps your first instinct then was then to, to demonize police officers, maybe any and all police officers. Seeing these events as a latest, or, or maybe you saw these events as a latest in a string of black lives that don't really seem to matter. Then Thursday night's events in Dallas, to me, completely complicates any of this sort of blindness, any of these sort of one-sided pictures, any sort of idea of this us versus them, zero-sum game. I think in our story, too, in our David story, this, this is the tension. This hostility runs high. Something's got to give. Someone's body is going to pay the price. These wheels of violence seem set in motion until David's story is interrupted. It's interrupted. By whom? Who could interrupt the king of Israel? Who could interrupt someone so insane like Nabal? Well, of all people is that fool Nabal's wife, Abigail. Abigail interrupts in three crucial ways. First off, Abigail interrupts with an imagination for abundance. Abigail sees abundance and not lack. Nabal seems unwilling to give an inch, to give any of his riches, any of his privilege, to offer David and his man anything seemed too much to Nabal. There's not enough to go around and anyways. That would make Nabal look weak, soft, yielding. Think of all the others that would show up thinking that they could set the terms for Nabal. David seems similarly scarce. If he's not willing to give it, so help me, I'm going to go take it. This fool, this gross Calebite dog has forced my hand. Doesn't he know who he's dealing with? I'm David. But that's not Abigail's world. Abigail knows there's enough. She knows there's more than enough. There's enough to gather up an impromptu feast that wouldn't even be missed. Enough for both of these egos to just be just fine. Enough for this whole thing not to end up in a bloodbath with a winner and a loser because when you're operating in a world like Abigail's, that bloodbath winner-loser thing looks like a lose-lose scenario. You see, I believe that the gospel of Jesus testifies to this sort of world of grace and abundance which means there's enough for all of us. There's more than enough 
And that the sort of scarcity mindset that has us, like Nabal or David, acting out of hostility or inhospitality or violence, that that's just sin. That's maybe the root of our sin. But it also means that in a world of grace, in a world of abundance, there's room. There's, there's even room for those things that we, we wish didn't keep coming up. There's room for grief. There's room for each specific and peculiar kind of grief that, that we can say and we can mean that Tuesday in Baton Rouge was a tragedy for which we must lament. That Wednesday in Twin Cities was a tragedy. The death of Philando Castile was a tragedy for which we must lament. That Thursday in Dallas those lives of those five police officers was a tragedy for which we must lament. We don't need to flatten them out. We don't need to pick a side. Understanding the allness of the world's brokenness, the pervasiveness of our sin, individual and systemic, and the ways that the powers of violence and death grip us helps us to ask God to break in, to interrupt, to disturb our attempts to fix, to explain, or to get on the right side of things. A world of abundance and a grace and grace can testify that that black lives matter full stop. Like you don't have to add the next thing. Because they do. Black lives are image bearing lives. This, this is basic. All because black lives mattering doesn't corner the market on other lives mattering. That's, that's what it means to live in a world of abundance. Because our country acting like black lives matter in normal, concrete, local, specific ways might actually enrich and make other lives matter a little more. Like, it doesn't have to be an either or, it's both and. That's what a, a world of abundance looks and feels like. Secondly, Abigail interrupts with an understanding of connectedness, of intimacy. Abigail pleads with David. If someone chases after you and tries to kill you, my master, then your life will be bound up securely in the bundle of life by the Lord your God. But he will fling away your enemies' lives as the pouch of a sling. She understands that her welfare and her future is not only unfortunately bound up with Nabal's, <laughs> but it's also bound up with David's. This is the same realization that Jonathan made a few weeks ago when, when he pledged his friendship to David and he said, my life is bound up in your life. But this expands that beyond just friends, beyond just who we want to be bound up with, and it binds us in this bundle of the living a bundle that, that the only way out of is to be flung out of like a sling from a slingshot. Her brave actions, Abigail's brave actions, attempt to, to re-knit this fraying bundle of the living that seems to be coming undone right in her midst. Her de-escalating presence is able to hold the whole thing together, this bundle, to tie it back together. We've been reading this summer of David's life with God, really trying to hone in on, really trying to read towards Christ. We see in the imperfect history of God's people the ways that David is giving glimpses of God's reign and rule, this coming kingdom. 
shadowing how God might anoint someone to, to usher in the kingdom, to set things right, to build a temple of God's presence with his people. But in this story, if we see Jesus, we see him in the margins of David's story, not dead center. We see him in the marginal Abigail. We see how the accelerating momentum of the story is stopped and then reversed by Abigail. Abigail is marginal because she's a woman in a male-dominated world, and Abigail is marginal because she's weaponless in a saber-rattling world. But mostly Abigail is marginal because she's beautiful in this materialistic, utilitarian world. They're all arguing and trying to kill each other over things, and and Abigail is introduced as one who is intelligent and beautiful. In Jesus also, this is what Colossians says, we find someone in the margins. In Jesus, we find someone who created all things, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. We find that that one who created all things, who holds all things together, says everything co-inheres in him. The fullness of God dwells in him and through him, He reconciles all things to God. He makes peace through his blood shed on the cross. This peace arrives in the margins, but knocks down all the walls of hostility as it sweeps through all creation to create a new unity in Christ. This Reconciling work uses the least, it uses the last, the lost, the littlest, the closest to death to bear witness to the connectedness, to the intimacy of all God's creation, of the bundle of the living. In the Gospels, we find Jesus doing this revolutionary work of restitching together humanity a work that culminates on the cross. We see him doing this work with a habit of blessing an unlikely other. Perhaps this is a habit that the church should pick up. After all, Jesus is our head. That we might re-envision how bound up we are, each of our lives with each other. Maybe that's what we do when we come to this table to remember what Christ has done on the cross knitting us to him and knitting us to each other. Maybe we do that with our words every day by by practicing offering blessing. These beatitudes, these preferential kingdom blessings to those who we need to be reminded that we're bound up with. To those who, if we're not careful, will alienate because their lives just don't seem to work very well to those who express and experience the kingdom of God, sometimes in more faithful and more true ways than ours normally do. Maybe we do well to bless them and to bind ourselves to them. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who show mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. 
we might, with some poetic license, add on, blessed are those caught in the middle. Blessed are the police officers who save lives, who lay down their lives, who allow others to voice their pain, who live and die for their communities. Blessed is their courage and care because it's seen and it's known and it witnesses to this coming kingdom. Blessed are the black bodies who have been treated less than, for they matter to the one who created them and who called them very good. So Abigail interrupts with this vision of connectedness and intimacy. And lastly, Abigail interrupts with beauty. When she's, inter- when she's introduced in this story, she's called intelligent. She's called beautiful, whereas her husband, and, and this is a warning for, for all, all of you guys who have married far better off than you deserve. Like, you don't want to be described as Nabal is described, you know, as a hard man who did evil things. But his wife is, she's really smart and she's beautiful, you know. It's this beauty, though, that the Hebrew word yafah, that's, that's how David was described. When Samuel was going through the lineup of, of David's brothers, and then you get to David and they say, he's, he's beautiful, he's, he's ruddy in complexion. But right now, David is not full of beauty. Abigail is the one in this story full of beauty. David is full of himself. David's full of rage. David's full of violence and supposedly righteous anger. David's full of hurt pride. He's full of the sort of violent pragmatism that Saul worked out of. You sense a threat, you eliminate a threat. That's what David's full of right now. And then Nabal is full of it too. He's full of foolishness. He's full of stubbornness, full of fear, scarcity molded in hospitality. And sure, this is an ugly situation that's about to get uglier in a bloody and violent way. It seems destined to be headed towards escalation until it gets de-escalated, disarmed, diffused, dismantled by guns, right? No, by beauty, right? That's the crazy thing. This whole thing gets dismantled not by an instrument of violence, but by beauty. This is not a beauty that's just some blinding flash of light. This isn't like a romantic beauty. This is a holy beauty. This is a costly beauty. Abigail hurries to load up 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, 500 sheep to cook, 38 quarts of grain, 100 raisin cakes, 200 fig cakes all in secret from her husband. Abigail's mission bordered on suicide, and then she shows up to David and says, David, here is a gift. A great way to describe this sort of beauty, this sort of grace in this beauty, comes from from Japanese language and culture. And I'm no expert, but I'm currently reading a book, which makes me an expert for the day, (laughs) about beauty and about sacrifice called Silence. Many of you have read that. I would recommend it. I'm not done with it, but I'd still recommend it. And, um, uh, friend, Je- uh, friend Mako Fujimura talks about the way Japanese culture is really visual, and that comes out in the book. 
so much so that their writing kind of smashes word concepts together to create other words. Um, when it comes to the, they call them these ideograms, when it comes to the ideogram for beauty, how, how Japanese culture thinks of and expresses beauty, um, it, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not merely aesthetic. It's not, it's not, it's not nice. It's not pretty. Um, the, the two words that they collide to create this word for beauty is, Matt, you can put up, it's this word for sheep, which the sheep is a, a purely kind of sacrificial um, picture here. And this word for great, meaning like there, there's nothing exceeding this sacrifice, and those get put together to create beauty. For the Japanese, beauty is found supremely in sacrifice. Because a sacrificial lamb is visceral, blood, hair, fat, and meat. That smell when, when you burn that sacrifice, that burnt hair, that sizzling fat. It's life poured out for the sins of others. That's what beauty means in that culture. Suffering and sacrifice are the greatest glimpses of beauty we can see in this world. And for all her smarts, for all her beauty, we see Abigail at her most beautiful when her life, when, when for her life she's breathlessly pleading to David. Not just for her own life to be spared, but for everyone's life to be spared. As she approaches David with this caravan of supplies, she falls on her, on her beautiful face before David. Eugene Peterson writes, Abigail on her knees then puts David back on his knees. Abigail's beauty was costly. It was risky. It was prophetic. It was a transforming beauty because it brought David back into the beauty of knowing and responding to God. Her beauty showed David the choice he was making before he had made it. That he was choosing to become like Goliath. He was choosing to become like Saul. He was choosing to become like this fool Nabal rather than to become more like God, this peacemaking God, to become more like his vocation, the one whom God had anointed, the one whom God had chosen, who had gifted an imagination in the wilderness, who had repeatedly figured out ways to make the situation less dire, less violent, less fraught, the David who knew the tender and creative beauty of the hillsides when he cared for sheep, when he played his harp to de-escalate Saul's mental state. It's this beauty that the prophet Isaiah intones when he says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring the gospel, who proclaim salvation. Or they call us oaks of righteousness, whose mere rooted presence, and this is what inspires me for this neighborhood, are, we're to be oaks of righteousness for the display of God's beauty. But not just prettiness, not just 
not just projects where we, where we freshen things up, but this kind of sacrificial beauty, this God's sacrificial beauty, the beauty of the cross, the beauty of the executed but spirit-raised Jesus, the beauty of the greatest lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the beauty of the one who gathered up all the violence of this world unto himself and repaid evil with good, who interrupted the cycle, the beauty of the one who re-knit the bundle of suffering creation, of broken humanity into new creation, into new humanity. This is our story. This is our calling. This is our mandate that we live inside, we live and breathe and operate inside of this reconciliation, that we act as reconcilers because we've been reconciled to God in Christ, forgiven, healed, that we de-escalate conflict because Christ has dismantled those powers and principalities of sin and death, that we like Abigail, witness to the powerful vision made into a saving reality in Jesus, a vision of abundance, a vision of interconnectedness, and a vision of beauty. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray for this beautiful kingdom to come. Lord, let us witness to it with our lives. Let us witness to it with our words. Let us bring our thoughts and our prayers to you, Lord, so you can reorder us. Lord, give us the courage like Abigail to, to not pick a side um, that we think is going to is going to win, that we not do things to try to come out unscathed, but we jump right into the middle. We fall right on our face because we know that in Christ you've, you've changed this world and you are changing this world. Father, where, where we fear scarcity and lack, forgive us. Father, where we disconnect from people and silo ourselves and, and, and try to ignore the hurt and pain of others, forgive us. Lord, where we opt for something that's fast or that we know that works over something that is slow and costly and beautiful, Lord, forgive us. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.